Today's guest is Michael Burns. He's many things. He is co-founder of, of Lionsgate, one of the only successful major movie studios in the last 80 years in Hollywood, uh, which that's most of the episode. He's also my neighbor. He lives right behind us and my family. We actually rent our house from Michael. So he's one of our first. He is our first friend in, in L.A. when we moved here about a year ago. And I've been wanting to have him on the podcast to give a breakdown of essentially the movie business 101 and how something goes from an idea in someone's head to a script, to a pilot, to a show like Mad Men, which is one of their shows from Lionsgate, and and the number of, of shows and movies that have come out of Lionsgate in the 20 years uh, since they were started is astounding, from uh, early hits with Monsters Ball, to the Oscar Darling Crash, to Mad Men, to The Hunger Games, the list, Twilight series, a bunch of things that billions of people around the world have watched. Michael is as knowledgeable and insightful as he is humble about starting uh, such a unique um, and successful movie studio like Lionsgate. So I'm really excited about our conversation that touches on much of his professional career as well as his personal. And if you dig conversations at the intersection of creation, philosophy, technology, then smash the hell out of that subscribe button, tap that like button, write in a comment, do all the things that I'm sure somehow influences the algorithms on either your podcast player or YouTube uh, to let us know you enjoy it. So without further delay, let's get into it with Michael Burns. This is Below the Line. Michael, welcome to the podcast and to the back house that I rent from you here in L.A. Happy, happy to be here. A, play, a place you know well. We're going to kick this off. This is the first in-person episode we've done in almost a year and a half. So we're going to kick this off with a little ritual, a little matcha ritual. Just so happens to be Magic Mind. Are we, are we taking magic. a shot here? Yeah, a little kick it uh, off with. I already have my uh, my espresso, but let's do it. Let's you know this. We'll kick that into higher gear. And it's the new flavor. So it's um, way better. Yeah. This is version 3.5 for anyone that's interested. Just launched about two weeks ago. All right. Miguel. Oh, that tastes so good. Okay. So right, right before we started recording, uh, you were mentioning the uh, the lunacy of the AMC um, meme stock. It's just climbing right now. I have not followed Wall Street bets super closely. I've not followed. I definitely don't know the, um, the underlying business fundamentals of AMC. When you're saying it's crazy to you, what what is so? I'm a big fan of the theatrical exhibition business, and I like uh, Adam Aaron a lot, who runs AMC theaters, and also you know like his uh, executive staff. Uh, Elizabeth Franks is terrific, uh, but I will tell you that uh, a thirty billion dollar mind uh, market cap for that company is sort of mind blowing to me. But uh, my hat's what, off. What should it? Uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I look at I look at it and say it's part meme stock and it's part well, it's gonna obviously going to pop back in six months. It's a, it's a really strange dynamic when you have gigantic short positions. And I do not root for short sellers as a general rule. I remember somebody asked me about short selling. I was trying to explain it actually in a, a, a business school class that I was uh, teaching uh, with a buddy of mine. And they said, uh, how does that make any sense that somebody can sell something they don't own? And uh, it's a really good question. But I think one of the 
really tragic things that the SEC uh, allowed a few years ago was they got rid of the uptick rule, which meant what that it, you could it? not short a stock unless it was a, 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 a an uptick, a plus tick from the previous trade or an even trade, which was a plus tick before that. So when they got rid of that, they enabled a bunch of hedge funds, for the most part, to be able to pile on and destroy a stock without any single uptick trade. So it took out any semblance of, of, uh, of in my opinion, of uh, uh, equality and, and let indiscriminate short selling take place. So to a certain extent, I'm sort of enjoying, um, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, some of these, uh, these market caps like GameStop and AMC Theaters at the moment at $30 billion uh, or $12 billion, whatever GameStop is today, <clears throat> even though those market caps don't make sense to me, I'm perfectly happy to see the short sellers get their faces ripped off. Okay. Can you explain the, the uptick just with an example? Sure. Um, the uptick rule used to be that let's say a stock was $20 a share. And let's say the trade before that was 20 and an eighth, and then it traded at 20. You can't, you couldn't short that stock until it upticked from the 20 to the 20 and an eighth or 20 and a quarter. So it gives a, when you get rid of that rule, it gives an unfair advantage, in my opinion, to short sellers who create panic. And that's how they make money, which is they just indiscriminately sell something, again, they don't own, all the way down. And uh, and it was ridiculous that, frankly, the SEC got rid of that, up, that, that uptick. It must have been pressure from the hedge funds to get uh, rid of it. And so that the hedge funds would, well, one, how long ago in the last just, few years? Just a couple of years ago, yeah. And so it, is it in their favor to get rid of it just to open up the surface area of things that they can then buy or the, that it, they can it make It really allows on? them to sell a position in a stock, uh, again, that they don't own uh, without having any buyers show up. So you can't, if you look at the other side of it is that to, to drive a stock up, you need a buyer, another buyer, another buyer. In this particular case, you, uh, you, you're in a position where the short sellers come in and they basically sell it at 20, then it goes to 19 and 7 eighths, then they sell it short at 19 and 7 eighths all the way down. Again, these are people that don't own the stock. So the whole philosophy for them or the trading pattern for them is to create panic and to and people don't know who is buying or selling the stock they might think this is basically an institutional fund that is exiting their position when in actuality it is it is uh their trades taking place by people or institutions or for that matter mostly hedge funds that are selling something that they never owned in the first place and so they can create panic by basically just saying this house is on fire. No one come in it. So obviously no one's going to become a buyer or it's mu you're much less likely to become a buyer if, if a massive institution is saying this is going further south. Sure. It's that old adage, which is, uh, you know, when stocks have had a bad run, you're trying to figure out whether you're catching a falling knife or a falling house. Mm. Um, you know, you, won't, you can survive a falling knife. You can't survive a falling house if it squishes you. So I am sort of happy about... Uh, what's happening, even though I think it, it, it sort of defies logic at these market caps, I am happy to see uh, companies surviving. Uh, and, uh, you know, Adam's done a great job uh, working with retail investors who are on the other side of, of, of buying the stock right now. Why are, I mean, I guess that is the question. Why are these, why are there so many retail buyers of these stocks? 
Well, because they see an opportunity, which is, again, I don't want to get into the intricacies of how stock loan works, but theoretically, if you short a stock, okay, you sell something you don't own, you have to be able to have on the other side, you need to borrow that stock from an institution that holds it in order to short it. But what happens in this particular case is that as that, they know there's a huge, you know, tens of millions of shares of short people that are short the stock. And as people move in to buy the stock, the retail investors, this Reddit crowd, which I, as I, certain, to a certain extent, I do applaud, as the Reddit crowd moves in to, uh, to buy the stock, what happens is the supply of lendable stock disappears. And then short sellers are, are uh, put in the position, they're backed into a corner that they have to buy the stock back that they've sold. And that creates the classic short squeeze. And okay, so to to elucidate this further, what happens in that squeeze? So they have to buy, they, they sell something that they don't own. So maybe with real numbers, maybe they s- give an example of re- you know, the actual numbers of a hedge fund selling a billion dollars worth of an AMC stock that they don't own. And then what happens? When what happens when they get squeezed, when somebody says, hey, uh, you borrowed this stock to short against it. We don't have the stock any longer. You need to cover your short position, which means you have to go long the stock. And then if there's not a great deal of supply out there, that's where the squeeze happens. And that's what's happening here. And so if you take a look at whether it's GameStop or AMC theaters, it is uh, very much about the short position on the stock. What do you mean by that? It's- the short meaning how many shares are short, mm-hmm. uh, how many uh, the group of investors that are short that stock betting on it to go down. And so when they when it's squeezed, does that make it a pop because there's so oh, little yeah, because there's, supply? There's no supply, and then you've got you've got an inordinate amount of demand. Oh, interesting. Okay, so then it's it's not just oh this is going counter to what the short sellers thought. It's actually this is going exponentially counter because it's the opposite of what they thought. They were making trying to make it go south doesn't go south and there's little supply being sold that makes it almost ricochet up and then they have to buy more of it to cover i guess their their short position so it's almost like it's like they are caught into almost not a squeeze but their their feet being separated doing the splits it's a it's a bloodbath and you remember here's the dangerous thing about shorting a stock is that you have unlimited exposure because the stock can just rise exponentially. And whereas if you buy a stock, it can only go to zero. Mm. But if you short a stock, there's no telling where it will end up, particularly if you end up in the middle of a squeeze. But again, I'm a big fan of the theatrical business. I think it's an incredibly important window for Lionsgate for um, for us to release movies uh, and uh, create this awareness for the movie. And, and again, there's something very special about watching a movie on the big screen. I watched the other night uh, on Netflix uh, I watched Inception with my uh, my oldest son, who is uh, 14, and I saw Inception in the movie theaters. And it's still a great movie, but watching it on the big screen versus on a little screen, uh, even a, you know whatever I have a 50 inch television set, but it was a completely different experience. Yeah, that's I remember watching Inception in the theater as well, um, and I remember leaving in the middle of it and being like. This is one of those unique experiences. I was go, running to the bathroom and running back because I was like, I'm in the middle of one of these 
never going to be able to recreate the first time that I see this experience. I don't think I've ever, I don't know if I've ever felt that type of uh, experience watching something on, on a TV. Um, what is, so this naturally brings us to for Lionsgate, for the movie business, uh, where does that, the theatrical distribution sit for the future of, of movies with, Again, and I am. You're going to have to explain these like I'm. I'm five years old because I don't know the business. But uh, you know, you see Disney putting on the bus on the actual bus advertisements in theaters and streaming June 15th or something. They're already planning that it's going to be streaming at the same time. I think that ultimately consumers get what they want as far as content consumption. They get what they want when they want it at a price point they're willing to pay. So I think that it took a pandemic to forever change the windowing of the entertainment business. So I think you'll see, I mean, it was sort of ridiculous before, if you think about it, which is, let's just talk about a, if you had a movie that didn't work particularly well and you spent $35 million releasing that movie on prints and advertising, commercials, trailers, et cetera. And now what happens is uh, it's two weeks out, two weeks later, the movie's failed. And now you had to wait months and months and months for the movie to come out on DVD, electronic sell through video on demand. So you had no benefit for your advertising campaign. Mm. That made no sense. So I think the idea that uh, the shorter windows, I know that, for example, Universal has a 17-day window, and 17-day window comes, um, you want to know why 17 days, that's three weekends. And so mm. the idea is, uh, movies staying in the theaters as long as they're they're successfully working, people are going. You know, we're we're attracting, getting butts in seats, and they're they're watching the movies on the big screen. Um, but at a certain point, when uh, it's coming out of the theaters, it's important for the studios to be able to release uh, that picture in a, in a variety of different ways. We've done that. Uh, we've done that with. Uh, we did a hybrid of that with uh, uh, a movie recently. Uh, we've done it uh, with uh, Annabellum. We've done that uh, spiral, spiral, which is out right now, which is sort of in the Saw universe with Chris yeah. Rock and, and yeah. Sam Jackson. That will be um, uh, that'll be uh, after it comes out of the theaters. It will be very quickly in, in different windows, including, by the way, in October on Stars, which is our premium pay channel. Who's who is happy about this? Um, sounds like the studios are happy about this, but who is happy about this? shift that the pandemic has caused the, uh, the consumers. consumers because ultimately and who's unhappy about it well i mean i guess you could make the argument that the theaters would like that that movie only available in the theaters for as long a period as, as possible and then after it leaves the theaters not become available for a while um, but that is not sustainable in this world it's the world has moved too quickly and i think that you've got a situation right now where um there's going to be a meeting of the minds between the theatrical exhibition and the um, uh, the studios. But there are some things that have to take place. There has to be dynamic ticketing in the movie theaters. It's ridiculous that you've got 5 billion unsold seats in America, meaning that movie start, empty seats are there. And if you go to the movie theaters in the middle of the week and, and it's during the day or it's, let's just say it's a 4 o'clock show and there's no one there, well, to drive consumption and to get people to go to the theaters, of course you have to move the price up and down. You know, the airlines do it, hotels do it, mm -hmm. cruise ships do it. It makes no sense that the theaters don't do it. So we have to get an alignment between the studios 
and um, the theatrical exhibition partners uh, to make that happen, in my view. And it will happen. Hmm. And within the, um, the consumers being happy, how, are the studios, is Lionsgate happy about this? Shift? Yeah, of course. Um, I think we're, we're trying to figure out a way. The margins have been, you know, very difficult in the, in the movie business. We take, you know, pretty, Lionsgate takes less risk than a lot of the major studios because we have international partnerships with licensing a lot of our, our uh, movies internationally. We self sort of self-distribute in a hybrid model in Latin America and also in the UK. But a lot of the other major territories, we're going to a partner there. So they're giving us a minimum guarantee. In many cases, they're distributing it for a, a reasonable fee. So we have back end. But there is a uh, it's a very different model than the than the, the major studios have in, in many cases. I've heard in in previous interviews you said, and by the way, for for listeners, um, Michael, one of the so we my wife and I and our kids we rent our house from Michael here down down in L.A. And um, I remember I was telling one of my friends that we're moving down. He's uh, and he's the founder of Zillow. Um, uh, Spencer Raskoff, who's been on the podcast before, brilliant mind. He had moved down to LA maybe two years before we did. I told him we're moving down, and and I said uh, our landlord um, is one of the co-founders of Lionsgate, and he said, "Which one?" And I was like, "Michael Burns." He goes, "All roads lead through Michael Burns," and and so that gives uh, listeners a little bit of a um, purview into Michael here in in LA and within entertainment. Um, so it's, I'm really excited for this entire, I, I hope we cover a lot of ground in this conversation because if, if all roads lead through you and I know a little bit about a, your backstory that I would love for you to tell listeners as well. One of the things that, that I've, I've wondered about is within Lionsgate, within movie studio, um, it's such a well-known entity. It's only 20 years old or so. Um, and you had a very different a strategy with with Lionsgate and and do you mind telling the I, I from what I've gathered you you kind of spotted the studio as a Canadian entity spotted it helped uh, buy it or, or fund it into becoming what it is today with well let the, me give you let me give you a little background on that the founder please. the true founder of Lionsgate is a guy named Frank Dustra who is an incredibly charitable guy he made his fortune in the in the mining business mm-hmm. and he's done incredible things for refugees lately lately he's uh, funded a lot of the the uh, Clinton Initiative. He is just a uh, a terrific human. He's based in uh, Vancouver. He came. He he founded the company. Uh, I, I put founded in in uh, parentheses uh, or in quotes. And and in 1998, I went on the board of Lionsgate in August of 99. And he asked me, and I didn't really want to do it. It was a very small company, $30, $40 million market cap. It was barely a public company. And, and why, why did he ask you? He said, you know, because I was a media banker for, for uh, I was running the media practice for Prudential, and I'd had some success raising money for uh, companies that, you know, were effectively startups. And so I didn't really want to do it. And my buddy, Dennis Miller, said, you have to do this. You'll love this guy. And, and frankly, if he hadn't been as charitable as he was, I wouldn't have done it. But I said to Frank, hey, I'm not really, I'm not really the operating guy. I'm more of a strategic guy. So we have to find a great operating guy. So anyway, so I went on the board of August 99. And then 
I got together with my one of my oldest friends, John Feldheimer, who really is truly an operating guy. He was he ran the television business, which is a global business for Sony. He was trying to work out his contract. He was not getting what he wanted, and ultimately he was leaving. So uh, John and I got together with Gordy Crawford, who was probably the preeminent uh, uh, media investor. He ran the media practice. He was an analyst at uh, Cap Research American Funds. So we all talked about it, and we said, "Look, you know, how do we how do we do this? Because it hadn't been a major studio or a, or a successful studio created in." I don't know, a hundred years. And, you know, we didn't have the legacy of uh, a big library or, uh, you know, big output deals. So uh, we put together a club deal um, and we said, all right, and I went to Frank and I said, look, John has to run this. I'll be his partner. We'll, we raised a very small amount of money. I mean, small now, considering the billions and billions of dollars we've raised since, raised since then. So we, I remember we did a $33 million convertible preferred, but it was a pretty heady group. Um, Gordy Crawford Cap Research came in. My friends at Fidelity came in. Uh, my just recently fired uh, buddy for a million years, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, was not at J.P. Morgan. He, he came in. I remember visiting him on Park Avenue and giving him the outline of the business plan. Just and, recently fired? No, no, this is way back. Yes, oh, back, oh, way back he, then. Way back yes, then, he had yes. just been fired. He'd gotten sideways with Sandy Weil, and he had left, and and he was basically in exile trying to figure out what his next thing would do, which ultimately turned into commercial credit, which ultimately segued into uh, the Chicago Bank, and which ultimately um, he became the probably the most powerful banker in the world. Right. Uh, and by the way, a great human with a lovely wife and uh, three great girls. But anyway, so he uh, came in and... We put this club deal together, and then Harry Sloan, who would uh, he was a client of mine and a great friend of uh, uh, John Feldheimer's as well, uh, he had uh, started uh, SBS and uh, Scandinavian Broadcasting. I took him public, and he came in, and Telemuchin, this fellow by the name of Herbert Kloiber, uh, came in as well. So we put together a uh, $33 million club deal, convertible preferred. And then the idea was, all right, we, we knew we had to, to drive equity returns. We had to end up uh, with a bank facility. And coincidentally, obviously nothing to do with Jamie at the time. We ended up doing a, a, a deal uh, for a revolving credit facility, borrowing-based facility based upon assets. But we really didn't have any assets. Frank had raised, I think, $40, $50 million initially in his public. He, it was sort of a reverse merger back into a public company. Um, but again, it wasn't really a public company. So we uh, went to I went to see John Miller, another old friend of mine who was running the media practice for for, for um, J.P. Morgan out here, and gave him the pitch. And he said, "Well, you, you need assets." And and so Gordy and Felt and I had talked about this, which is we're going to buy every library we possibly can, because we didn't know what technology was going to emerge. I mean, there were basically DVDs and broadcast television for the library output, and then theatrical. So. But we knew there were new technologies coming along. But we hadn't thought about streaming. We hadn't thought about electronic sell-through, video on demand. It was all, remember, this is back in 2000, so 21 years ago. So we bought every available library, some good, some bad, some ugly. Uh, but we bought uh, the Trimark Library. Ultimately, we bought the Artisan Library. Ultimately, we bought Summit. And so we put together, we cobbled together. Um, well, now it's it's a big library. It's over 17,000 titles. How does that compare to other studios i think it's probably one of the biggest as far as number of titles and i and the 
uh, the cash flows coming out of it. You can look at the last uh, earnings report we talked about. I don't know, seven hundred fifty million dollars plus of uh, very high margin uh, revenue. So per, per quarter from those seventeen thousand, seventeen thousand that year end, seven hundred fifty plus. Yeah. I think it was seven eighty seven or something like that. You can look at the public filings, but very high margin business. Mm-hmm. So the library has turned into being incredibly valuable and more valuable in my opinion by the day right now because what's happening is everybody else has got their own streaming services. So you have Universal that's going to hoard a lot of their product for Peacock. And then you have Warner Brothers, obviously, which is now getting taken over by Amazon. That is, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Warner Brothers is, is uh, uh, now been sold to Discovery. So what will happen is now you have Discovery Plus. So what are they going to do with their product? Probably going to end up a lot of it on Discovery Plus. And then you have uh, on top of that, uh, HBO Max that they have to feed from the Warner Brother Library. And so, and then you have Paramount, which is now has Paramount Plus. So we're in a position right now, and then obviously Disney is not selling stuff to the marketplace or using it for Disney Plus. So, and Fox is now part of Disney. So we're in a place right now where everybody is hoarding their library for their own streaming services. So being a free agent, or as I've been quoted as saying, a benevolent arms dealer in the world of library, that puts us in a pretty good spot right now for the foreseeable future. Yeah, in in tech terms, we'd say someone like Drop, Dropbox is platform agnostic. So Google yes. Drive, obviously very specific to Google, um, and it's going to be in, implemented in you know seamlessly in an Android phone. But iPhone isn't going to seamlessly integrate uh, you know Google Drive. But Dropbox is the you know, essentially Switzerland uh, platform agnostic example. With so a pretty guys, good market cap, as right, I recall. Great market cap. And it's a um, that platform agnostic moniker becomes super valuable um, over time. But investors obviously recognize it early on. Okay, that's going to be a unique property. So I was going to say one more thing about yeah, what, what, it, what it did was we basically took a very big bet on stars a number of years ago because we didn't want to be just the sort of the lone studio without our own output you need to be able to to control your own destiny in some form so we we bought stars a number of years ago which is a 4.3 billion dollar transaction levered it up and uh and but we believed that we could really with the right management team create a a, a terrific streaming service of our own but again not trying to be all things to all people and we thought we had an opportunity to take stars internationally and that would necess- not necessarily be a first mover advantage, but it'd be a second mover advantage after places like Netflix. So we're now in, I don't know, approaching 60 countries internationally. But the international rollout of stars would not have had a chance to happen without having the library available to it that Lionsgate um, uh, provides them. I mean, they, they, they license it for, for uh, arms like transaction. However, the idea that we control that library gives us a huge advantage. And also, STARS is not trying to be all things to all people. But they last quarter, we reported that um, STARS is now over 10 million uh, streaming subs in the in uh, the United States. And that is a, uh, a terrific uh, uh, result for us, and it's climbing fairly dramatically. And again, they're going after underserved markets, women, believe it or not, or more than half the population are women, and it's underserved. And then uh, we're doing a great job in the African-American community with things like Power or uh, a bunch of the new series that we've just, uh, uh, around the world, we've just uh, uh, launched on the service. So I feel like that gives us a great hedge uh, to 
stayed this, uh, as you said, uh, well, I say benevolent arms dealer, you called it, uh, what did you call Pla- it? Platform agnostic. Platform agnostic. And so um, we're, you know, we've got uh, on our television business uh, run by Kevin Beggs, we've got, I think we have 85 shows on, on the air and various platforms and, and channels uh, around the globe. And, and again, uh, we're about creating as much quality content as possible and, uh, and, and licensing that uh, over and over and over again. It's like an oil well that never runs out of oil. Mm. Yeah, and for, for listeners, when, when uh, Michael talks about this library, it includes everything from the early hits that, that put them on the map as a new studio, um, the, the Tesla of movie studios, if there hasn't been another one in 100 years, um, to become such a, a major part of the ecosystem within 20 years. It's through titles like Monsters Ball, uh, Mad Men on TV, Crash, the Oscar Darling, to um, which or, I want to ask Orange you is the New Black. Orange is the New Black. Hunger, Hunger Games, Games. Twilight, and right. then uh, our newest uh, franchise is, uh, well, now you see me as a good one, but also uh, John Wick. Oh, wow. Awesome. Okay, so it's people have obviously seen the uh, the pre-roll of Lionsgate on movies, but it's it's pretty remarkable what you've done in movies and in, in TV. But before going into too much on, on that, I did want to ask you, um, for someone to take a movie, let's say the, the first John Wick or really any, any movie from, um, from literally soup to nuts. Would you walk me through movie making one one Does it start with a script? Does it start at, all the way to now there's three John Wicks, but could you, if we know that's the end of the movie, what is the beginning of the movie look like? I have no idea. Does it start with, okay, director, has an idea? Well, I think it's a. Uh, it's I'm mean, funny you mentioned Monsters Ball because the movie businesses and also the television business. It's it's all about the people you're in business with, not only the executives at the company, but the creators uh, and uh, the filmmakers, the talent, the writers, the actors. It's all about the quality people you're you're in business with. So, it's again the the movie and television business. It's an art and a science and. And I'd also say the same thing for stars, the shows they put on the air, which is, you know, you're looking for hits and you're looking for uh, content that people are going to, uh, that, that is going to resonate with a, a, a big audience um, and, and hopefully a loyal audience. So I think that, and again, this is simplistic because no one knows anything in the movie business, but um, that's an old quote from uh, Goldman. But anyway, but the idea is, I think it all starts with if you have a great idea or a piece of material. Uh, It could be a book. It could be a script. It could be a concept. If you have that and and it's an exciting piece of source material that you will attract a great filmmaker and the filmmaker will ultimately get you the talent. And who starts with that source? I mean, these are all, it's kind of word soup for me between directors, producers, It could be, a, for example, okay, I guess that uh, we had, um, we did a very successful um, movie called Wonder. Mm-hmm. It started with a fantastic book that, that segued into a great script, that segued into a great movie. And now we're going to do some spinoffs of that. Mark Forrester, you mentioned Monsters Ball. By the way, it's funny when, you know, I listen to your podcast and talk about you know how close even some of these successful companies come to, uh, you know, 
going bankrupt or you know uh or just not existing any longer and and uh and you know we came close very early on we when we got our credit facility uh we just created a ton of content and some of it worked some of it didn't work but a really a breakout movie for us this is 27 years ago was monsters ball because we made it for very little money mark forrester did a phenomenal deal obviously halle berry won the best actress award uh, first african-american woman to do so i think the only one actually to this point but that'll change and then mark forrester 20 years later who's a good buddy of mine just ended up doing um one of the wonder offshoots called uh, white bird that he just shot that in in europe so uh it starts with that that material hunger games and who shepherds it like who says we have it's creative executives it's, yeah okay. i mean you take a look at that in the movie business um joe drake um one of i think nina uh jacobson brought um brought hunger games to a bunch of studios including is she a producer she's a producer okay. very successful uh producer and she brought it Joe Drake was running the film business. Then he left, and now he's back. It's like it's like that scene from Godfather Three, where just when you think you're out, we, we get him back. So, and so Joe and Nathan were at the company way back then, and then here we go again. Uh, there's a new uh, there's a new book that's written by the Hunger Games author. It's called uh, Snakes and Songbirds, and that'll be that should be a big movie for us. That's sort of it's almost like a prequel to originally what happens. It goes back to the. Uh, sort of how President Snow became President Snow as a young man. So uh, that is, it, you've got to you've got to have a team of executives that can figure out what scripts are worth making. You know what filmmakers, what great filmmaker you can attach to direct that movie because that's where what's going to make the actors feel safe. I mean, we have this crazy guy directing a movie for us right now, but wildly talented Eli Roth. We're shooting Borderlands right now. Uh, yeah, we're shooting I've that. Heard in, his in, name before? But oh, yeah, he's sure. done some. He's done some. You can look him up. But he's um, he's wildly talented, young, and very very uh, enthusiastic. But he's a really talented filmmaker. He was in uh, as an actor too. He was in uh, 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 that uh, Inglorious Bastards with mm. uh, with that uh, Tarantino did such a marvelous job on. But he uh, is shooting a movie Borderlands based on a big video game. Uh, movie and he attracted that we had a great script but it was obviously an existing piece of IP but we've got Kate Blanchett who's sort of actors crack because everybody wants to work with her and so uh, Jack Black is voicing this and then we've got Kevin Hart Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, it's turned into uh, a great cast and it'll be a really fun movie and it's a big expensive movie for us but we like what's been put together. But again, it's the art and science of, of putting together these packages. And walk me through the long form version of just how that how that starts. Does Eli Roth say, okay, hey, this this video game has a big community, Borderlands. I'm gonna uh, get a writer to help me write a script for it and typically then pitch that's the not, script? That's not how it works. So typically, I mean, there are filmmakers that will bring us scripts that they wanna do, but typically uh, we'll have a, We'll have an executive at the company that will say, "Look, I think we we should option Borderlands because we could turn it into a terrific movie." So uh, we ended up making a, a a deal with the the holder of the video game company that that owned the rights to Borderlands. And so now what happens is now you got to figure out right, who's going to uh, which writers are going to be able to create a great uh, script out of this material. And then you go out uh, to the marketplace through agents and managers, and you find a a writer or two writers or three writers that can come in and pitch what their story would be. And then from there, you hire them to write a script and it goes through 
a lot of drafts, sometimes many different writers. You ultimately get it into a place where you think there's a real movie here. There's a beginning, middle, middle and end. And then you get a filmmaker and you go out to a bunch of different filmmakers and you say, what are you, you know, are you interested in this? And what would your take be on that? Effectively, there's an audition, audition process for them mm. to come in and give their pitch. You hire that writer, I mean, that director uh, based upon that script. And then you go out together and you try to find the best actors uh, that, that fill these roles so that you can give yourself a better chance to make a great movie that'll be successful for you. I mean, that's a very simplistic. No, that's, but that's, that's uh, fascinating to hear that process. Cause I think from a, especially from my 10,000, 30,000 foot view, you see someone win a, an Oscar for screenplay and, and you hear potentially that that version of their story is they had the script for five years. They're pitching it all over the place. No one wants to buy it. And then it becomes, you know, an, a movie that you watch in the theaters. I think Monster's Ball kicked around uh, various machinations of that script for 13 years. Whoa. Yeah. And we made it in. So that was an example where someone had written a script and had pushed it and pushed it. No one wanted to buy it. Okay. So what is the, what is the inflection point in which for you all that became not just a script getting kicked around for 13 years, but was bought? I mean, I, I think everybody will have different views on it, but I think the the difference is you get a filmmaker that has a great vision or a filmmaker you have faith in, or in some cases, a lead actor. How so? The lead actor says, hey, there's a script yeah, leader, floating around. Says, I'm really reading. interested in playing this role. And then, you know, then that, in that case, the actor could attract the director. But mm. most cases, you get the filmmaker first. And in the television side of the business, it could be if you have a great creator or if you have a um, uh, uh a um, showrunner, a potential showrunner for a, a scripted television show that can come a variety of ways. We were involved with a book which was uh, based on a, a, a woman's life, Orange is the New Black. Um, we had already done a very successful series with, uh, with Jenji Cohen, Weeds. And so that was a great pairing and, and ultimately led to a terrific show that we did with Netflix, that we, did, that we put on Netflix. It was our show. And what what's the um, decision process? Is there a decision? I'm sure you love all children equally as a studio, but with with different projects, um, well, just zooming out, does does the majority of the revenue come from TV versus movies for now, Lionsgate? I think it depends. The the television business is sort of I'll call that the long game. So you're making shows and it's going uh, and you're hoping your shows go four or five years so that you can sell them in different cycles of syndication. And if you have a hit show that becomes a um, iconic like Orange you know, is the New yeah, Black, Orange is the New Black and also a movie, a show that we did incredibly well. And it's a funny story because um, uh, my father was an advertising executive. Yeah, it's, it, Mad Men is Mad loosely Men. based on your. Well, no, no, but I, my, I said he was the um, he was Don Draper without the philandering. But. He, uh, but Kevin Beggs, that was a pilot that was, uh, that show was created by uh, uh, Matt Weiner, and it was a um, pilot that was uh, made by AMC, and no one really wanted it, period piece. Um, and no one was in the show, in the, in the pilot that anybody knew, but Kevin Beggs, who still runs television for us, and, and uh, the chairman of the television group with his partner, Sandra Stern, he, uh, he saw something very special in here. And, and John Feldheimer, who came out of television, uh, liked the pilot very much, but he said it's too expensive, period piece, 
risky AMC because AMC was just really, uh, I mean, that show in many ways put AMC right. on the, on the, uh, on the map. So anyway, so we said, I'll never get the money out of it. So I kind of did a favor for Kevin Beggs. I said, well, let me, let me go back and pitch the AMC guys. So the, the buyer was there. And I said to, I said to John at the time, I said, you know, if we get enough money out of AMC for the domestic licensing fee, and he said, you got to get at least $2 million out of them per show. Otherwise we're just not going to per episode per episode. Okay. Otherwise we're going to get, you know, our head ripped off. And so anyway, we went back and I remember I went to lunch with the, the executive at AMC and and uh, and sort of said this could be a great thing. Our guys really like it, but it's really expensive. It's a big risk. AMC is a big risk. Anyway, so we uh, I remember I think I got him up to I don't know a million nine, and I don't think John ever thought they were going to come up to close to two million dollars an episode. So I said I said I didn't get the two million. He goes, What'd you get? And I said, I think they'll give us $1.9 million for the domestic, you know, airing two times. He goes, well, it's pretty close. And so anyway, that was close enough to get this thing mm. made. And that show is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, it won every award you can imagine. And, uh, and Matt did an incredible job on that, on that series. It is, it is uh, truly something that will, that it's ageless. So sometimes you get lightning in a bottle. I think we have a couple series that that uh, could turn into. Um, uh, well, Orange's New Black was obviously very very successful for us, but we have a couple new series that feel like they got the chance to do just that for us on the uh, both on the star side and the uh, and the Lionsgate television side. So we'll see. This episode is brought to you by a little sipper called Magic Mind. Ever wake up in the morning wondering what am I doing with my life? Well, what you probably aren't doing is sipping on them Magic Minds. Magic Mind is a two-ounce shot, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens, functional mushrooms, everything in a morning ritual drink that you've ever wanted. You take it alongside your morning coffee or tea, you get seven hours of creative, productive flow. It has 12 magical ingredients that all combine for everything you'd want in a shot. Energy, cognition, de-stressing, immunity support, everything in this two ounce beautiful shot that tastes delicioso. So go check it out, magicmind.co, enter promo code BTL, that's BTL for below the line for 20% off, magicmind.co. Go check it out and get them sippers. With Orange is the New Black, is there a decision internally of do we make this for TV or movies or is it just the project it presents itself only for one or the other. Is there a strategic choice? Well, I, it's funny because we we have a show now on Stars, uh, which is just kicking off called Blind Spotting, and that was based on a movie. Uh, we did a show uh, uh, that was on Netflix called Dear White People, that was based originally on a movie. So did the movie exist or that just no, the, the movie, was, movie was already made okay. and it sort of segued into a, a television series. The same thing, the Blind Spotting which was done years ago as a theatrical title, became a, a television series. So there's more and more of that because the writing has gotten so spectacular on the television side. And when you have limited series, you have the ability to attract actors, movie actors that you could never have gotten before. But there are very few, there are very few movie stars right now that can greenlight uh, a particular movie. I mean, maybe on one hand you could you could name who, them. Who are those people? That oh, I don't know. I mean, look, if you take, look at guys that have been around forever. I mean, uh, 
I mean, incredible how long, for example, Tom Cruise has been a movie star. I mean, just, but there are so few uh, movie stars that, that, that have been around for decades. But, and, you know, I think that there's also some people like I will almost always watch something that Tom Hanks is in. Mm-hmm. So, and he's been around, you know, forever. I mean, you think about the beginning of his career on something like Bosom Buddies. And so, but again, uh, he's one of the few guys that pulled off that segue back then from the television series uh, to movies, became a gigantic movie star, but it is few and far between. If you take a look at, uh, as I said before, Mad Men, that cast, no one knew anyone in that cast. Mm-hmm. I had dinner with John Hamm and, and uh, uh, up the street, my favorite restaurant, and 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 he was really, if that hadn't, if he hadn't taken that job, uh, if he hadn't been offered the that lead uh, to pay, play Don Draper in, in, in Mad Men, he was probably going to move back to St. Louis and become a gym teacher. So yeah, he had, had, so I think I remember hearing he had been at it for 15 years or something. Well, look at George Clooney. I mean, who's you know unbelievably compelling. I think George Clooney was in like 13. I mean, making this up, but 13 different television pilots and. Then he kicked around and ultimately ended up on ER, and that became his big break. But, mm. but in reality, that is a, uh, it's a tough world, mm-hmm. really tough world to 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 uh, to break into. But now you've got the you've got actors uh, and directors, for that matter, switching back bef- between television and feature films. Mm. Okay, one of the other questions that I had off of just the concept of the breakdown between TVs and movie, and movies within something like. Um, Within something like Mad Men, do you and and this there's two ways of asking this question, so hopefully I ask it the right way. But with something like Mad Men, you felt like you had lightning in a bottle right off the bat. But on AMC, almost the exact same time, you have Breaking Bad, which took a few years to really feel like this was lightning in a bottle, at least from the mainstream perspective. I remember it wasn't until season for season one, Mad Men. Every one of my friends was talking about it. It wasn't until maybe season four of Breaking Bad that I heard friends say, you got to watch this. Is is one more likely than the other? Um, or have you, is there a pattern that you recognize where you've seen it both ways? Oh, yeah, for sure. I've seen it both ways. And uh, But like I said before, no one knows anything. I mean, look, no. I've been plenty of shows. Um, uh, you know, a dear friend, friend of mine or a bunch of friends of mine were on Full House. I think it was Dead Last when it came out on ABC. Dead Last. In the first season. Yeah. And then you have to take a look at Cheers. Same thing. Really took a long time to get an audience. And really? sometimes they come, you know, out of the gate. But, you know, great shows for very specific audiences ultimately attract an audience. But you, the nice thing about streaming right now is and not having the necessarily the ratings pressure um, so you give it these shows a chance to really breathe, and uh, mm. and find their audience. So I'm uh, I think that's uh, you know better. We have a great show that we're launching in the Modern Family slot, Home Economics, this year, which is really a great. It's about siblings, but they're from you know you talk about tale of two cities. You've got one really successful hedge fund guy, and then you've got a teacher in the middle, and then you've got somebody really struggling. And these three siblings meet meet once a week for dinner. And just talking about the the different worlds that they're in, and I think that has the potential to be a, a hit show. Um, we have a great show, and and I hope it gets picked up again. Which is I don't know if you've seen Zoe's extraordinary playlist. With uh, it's a it's a lovely show, which is on NBC, and I, I hope that ends up uh, getting picked up for another season. But 
again, we have shows everywhere. We have a bunch of shows on, uh, looks like they're going to go on HBO Max. We've got obviously a bunch on on, uh, on stars. We have First Ladies with Showtime, which is all about the First Ladies of the United States. It's going to be, it could be a series that goes on and on and on. So uh, again, we're looking to uh, create these shows that can live a long time. Um, I want to ask if there's any, are there any attachments that you grow to these shows to where you're like, I love the show. Why the hell is it not taking off? And you, you objectively just with all of your experience, know this is a great show or is it kind of like you see it kind of die on the vine? You're like, Nope. This, this. Well, sometimes it's not our decision. Um, sometimes it's the decision of the network or the broadcaster or somebody else's pay television. We have a little bit more flexibility if we have something on stars, uh, a show that uh, that we love and is slowly upticking. The nice thing about data right now in the business is that there's something called first stream. So if you have a show and uh, or if you you put the app out there and somebody signs up for the app, which is pretty good, pretty good deal, eight ninety nine a month. And go listeners, go get it. Go get stars uh, the stars app because the the movies and the shows are pretty extraordinary. And, and quite a slate that Jeff Hirsch and his team have got coming forward. But the idea is, you know, they download the app. The first thing that they watch is usually the reason that they they downloaded the app. And so you get a sense for sort of how your advertising is working and whether they stuck with the show. Did they watch one episode? Did they go to the sec one, second one? We have a show called Minx, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which is a show... I think we're actually doing that with HBO, but that is a, it's a terrific show. And again, if you have great content, you got to, you want to give it the best chance you can to succeed. And so sometimes that's more difficult, but I think that uh, the streaming services give us that opportunity. Earlier, you were talking about, um, when you were talking about Monsters Balls kicking around for 13 years, um, is there a pattern? Am I just selecting these? because it sounds it sounds good but is there a pattern between uh monsters ball um a bunch of firsts it's super low budget um it is you have uh all of these things that in 2003 or so or it was maybe 2002 is you have a very sad story you've got a um interracial couple you have a uh, black female lead you've got a um you have, I mean, a really just depressing topic, um, and yet it's it resonates so well. And and then you have something like Crash, where I think I remember uh, in in some of the research for this that you all were the only bidder of that. Yeah, becomes, Toronto Film Festival. It's amazing to me, and that went went on to to win Best Picture. You have Mad Men that you say also is just period piece, super expensive. Um, is that a pattern that I'm just self-selecting because it it makes for um, a great kind of uh, you know against the odds story, or is that something that you have seen these things that will seem just strange at the time that maybe only you all are interested ends up being the things that you know. It's funny. I give I give crashed. I give uh, Jason Constantine, uh, who is running our acquisitions department, and also John. John uh, Feldheimer was. You know, very interested in the crash script from the very beginning. But we were surprised after it premiered in Toronto that we we were the only bidders. And I said, "What are we missing here?" And ultimately, we weren't, weren't missing anything, and it turned out to be uh, terrific. But I think it's all about the people 
uh, Jason Ida Cowan, they loved uh, they loved some of the initial footage on John Wick, which has turned into a massive franchise for us. By the way, Keanu, what did we, others miss with with something like who knows? I mean, the and and you know, I was going to say also Keanu Reeves is just a great human, but. Uh, yeah. And he's been a great- which is such a big part of movies these days is who is this human that we're supporting outside? I mean, talk about Reddit. Reddit loves Keanu Reeves. Oh, is that right? Loves Keanu Reeves. And it's photos of him helping someone ca- cross the street. It's photos of him eating a sandwich by himself that that people that and he looks downtrodden that become these amazing like heroic images of he's just, He's a normal guy that goes through ups and downs. I only do uh, the only social media the I do is uh, basically Instagram, which is uh, private, and I don't have you know 150 friends or something that, and family members that you know can see pictures of my kids. But the uh, there's a great I don't know I get the Instagram feeds, um, and there was a great question that he was doing uh, Steve Colbert, and they asked him the question. Uh, he asked the question, which is where do you think you know, what do you think happens when you die? Um, and he talks about, I don't want to give away the punchline, but it's just a 30-second scene. It's it's worth watching, and you'll get a real sense for his uh, his being with that that one answer. Right, and that feels like that's such a, um, it's almost meme stockish, where there's something that AMC has in our heads that way far, it far out exceeds anything that they, maybe the business fundamentals might suggest. Just AMC in our heads. Same thing with Keanu Reeves. People see these things and love him to the point where it is uh, like I'm not joking. Reddit loves Keanu Reeves. Yeah, and they and they, and they love AMC. We get them to love. Uh, you know, we have this ticketing app that we own with Disney and and Snap, uh, but actually is now going to be uh, uh, run by this incredibly talented African American. Uh, uh, Brian Bowles, and it is a it'll be a minority controlled. And, and the thing about um, that technology tied into AMC, and AMC by the way is an investor in it as well, uh, is the idea that it, it took a long time coming. But is that you, Adam ticketing? Adam ticketing. Yeah, you can download the app; it's free. But the image, and they do a bunch of stuff with T-Mobile, which is very successful. They do that. They did something last week with Paramount on the uh, Quiet uh, Place Two, which was a very successful campaign. But the interesting thing about Adam is there where, okay, let's pre-order your concessions mm. and uh, and then have assigned seating. All the stuff that the, the theatrical business has evolved into it took too long to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, again, doing everything they can to make it a, a better uh, theatrical experience. But uh, no, we, we did full circle back to the Reddit group. Yeah, the, it's and there's something to, um, I would imagine 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would not have said Keanu Reeves is one of those bankable stars. You know, and, you just you just don't know. I mean, he's always been likable. You think about it. He again has he. I don't. I don't well, know. you think about it. He's had you know whether it's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was a franchise. Speed was a franchise. Certainly, uh, uh, The Matrix, and then you've got now you've got John Wick. So here's a guy with four separate franchises. Doesn't happen very often. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even Bruce Willis as Die Hard, and maybe no other franchises. Does yeah. They, okay. So back to um, this, this pattern is the, is there a pattern or again, am I just, just kind of choosing these stories that, that you all seem to find these scripts or projects that no one else is interested in um, crash, Mad Men, um, monsters ball. 
and is that an an acquisitions team thing? How does that how does that happen? I think it's your acquisition team, but we develop a lot of properties too from scratch. So uh, you know, original scripts. So again, but or we're big fans of source material. Like, uh, what is that? Yeah, what does that mean? Source material would be, for example, Hunger Games was a book. Now. I th- we bought it, I think, before the book came out or it just started, sold, sold a few copies. Yeah. But again, a lot of people wanted to, a lot of studios were like, oh, we don't want to get near that. It's kids killing kids. It's way more than that. Uh, it is, I mean, if you really think about uh, uh, Suzanne Collins, who, who wrote that book, uh, I mean, unbelievable book in so many ways. And it's, it's Was she already a known entity or how, how do you buy a, a book she, that's only- Yeah, she's done, a, a, few. She done a, f- a few books. Uh, uh, nothing had broken out like that, but you know she was. She's an incredibly thoughtful person. If you and she, uh, you can look up the. I don't want to get into it right now. She could do it great justice, which is her, uh, you know, effectively uh, just war theory that there is no uh, true reason for war in, in in most cases of humanity, and and so. But again, that was a a book that was written, and. You just couldn't put it down. Same thing if you think about, you know, we didn't develop it, but um, uh, Stephanie Myers did Twilight, which is a phenomenal uh, uh, series of books and also turned into a great summit, had done that uh, on the- on You the, bought that afterwards? Uh, bought that, bought Twilight. And again, that was that was, ta- that was originally optioned by Paramount. What does and, that mean, optioned? I mean, they, they had the rights. They were going to make it into a movie and then for whatever reason, let that, escape them and uh, we all make mistakes like that but the uh summit bought it and turned it into this i mean i you know i went to the last two we had owned summit when the last two um breaking dawn one and two came out so i went to those premieres that was like that must have been like going to a beatles concert way back when Mm. not quite old enough for that (laughs) the uh i remember seeing seeing uh some scenes of the the craze that was around that movie does uh, could you walk listeners through a little bit more of, of what you touched on or the trough of the business a few years in when you felt like you almost went out of business? I think we had like thirty eight thousand dollars left on our credit facility while we were waiting for some movies to come out. Yeah, what and, year? What year was this? Walk me through the whole. Well, I was right around the release date of Monsters Ball, but it's not like we had you know pissed away the money. We just invested in television shows and, and feature films, and then we're okay. Now we, we got to see how they do. And that one really helped us. Monsters Ball helped us uh, from a credibility standpoint, awards consideration. These guys can release a movie. And it didn't do giant business. I think it did around $40 billion. But for a movie that cost a nickel, that was very profitable for us. So Did you know it was going to be – like when you watch a movie, and again, like I'm five years old. When you watch a movie, do you know, okay, Monsters Ball, this is going to be a hit? Or I don't think anybody. Again, back to no, that adage, I don't think yeah. anybody knows anything. I think that there are some movies that I've seen that I was like, holy cow, that's going to work. And you know, sometimes you're right and sometimes you're you're wrong. Same thing with television shows. I've seen some great TV shows that I thought should be massive hits that didn't become that, and um, that's just the the way that there's so many factors that are that are involved with whether something becomes a hit. But again, you're trying to take enough swings at the plate that you put yourself in a position to have something work. And, you know, when you have a franchise that works like Twilight or Hunger Games for that matter, it's a, you know, you can make a fortune. And, and you know, you could make, theoretically on a franchise like that, you know, 20% of our, or 
25% of our current market cap. Mm. So that gives you movie yeah, for one movie series, 17,000 titles. Yeah. So that gives you the ability to, um, uh, to keep taking swings. And again, the idea is you want to keep making this content. You put it in your library. It's, as I said before, the oil well that never runs out of oil. And, you know, look, we have a title. I'm actually having dinner tonight uh, with Nathan Kahane, who's our uh, president of our motion picture group, and Jennifer Gray. And because we're going to do another Dirty Dancing. But Dirty Dancing came out <laughs> a gazillion years ago. And that movie, we always license it. We have. Uh, you guys own that? We do. Wow. Uh, and it, it became, you know, we did, uh, we've done, you know, many different, whether it's. Uh, a touring play or the music in that. And there's just so many things that you can do with that title. And so the idea that, uh, uh, that it will continue to, you know, it will be, it will continue to reap dividends from a title. That's that old. That's a great thing. It's, it's somewhat similar to angel investing or tech investing where there's very few, very few professions where you can, uh, essentially decide to fund something, on a Tuesday, some random year, and eight years later, 10 years later, that decision, 4 p.m. on a Tuesday, is still accretive, is still gaining value. You can't do that as a dentist, a lawyer, a maybe in you know a class action lawsuit, but as a doctor, some surgery you did 11 years ago isn't still accruing value. Well, and also, also it is one of the attractive things about that business, at least to me, which is that you're creating, you're buying, you're making um, content that goes on forever. Forever. So as long as there's humanity uh, or, you know, people on the earth, you're, they're, they're, you've, if you create this content, it'll probably show up somewhere, at least be able to be seen and uh, hopefully enjoyed uh, in perpetuity. I've never, never thought about that before. Is that for such a financial mind, and I'm sure listeners have gotten that, um, is that one of the primary attractions to this business early on in your financial career? Well, you can't do this. Coca-Cola, yeah, you do have something valuable, but it is a, you got to make more Coke every year. You got to have bottlers. You've got to have distributors with dirty dancing just makes it into the cultural zeitgeist and then it just continues to yeah nobody puts baby in a corner i think that uh i think that's an attractive thing about it i was you know a wall street guy for a long time got burned out on too many airplanes and it was you know it was it was very tough and i you know ultimately wanted to have a start a family so as you know i have three boys but i did like the idea of creating annuity streams and love the idea of employing thousands and thousands of people, you know, not just the, not just the, um, the employees that we have at Lionsgate stars, you know, depending on when it is between one and 2000 people, but every production, all the people that we're hiring that aren't Lionsgate employees, all the 1099s that we send out, uh, every single year, you know, changing people's lives. Um, that is, particularly gratifying to me so and again i i did the wall street thing for 20 years john and i've been at the company for 21 years just it does it goes very very fast Mm. so uh and it is 
exciting to build something. And I do miss the days, frankly, that I knew every single person at the company, and that's not the case anymore. And I don't like necessarily being addressed in an elevator as Mr. Burns. <laughs> yeah, I've avoided that. Um, the I want to get into the two questions that I ask everybody um, that comes on the podcast of stories that have helped shape your life and then what's something you think quite a bit about but rarely get a chance to talk about. But uh, just to round out the topic of running a studio like Lionsgate, what is nice about 2021 in this modern world that we live in for running Lionsgate uh, and building out a studio? And what is not nice about this modern world we live in? Well, that's a that's a mouthful. So, so you want me to answer the first question, which is stories that have sort no, of. No, sorry. Just start with. Let's start with that last one first, and then we'll get into what's 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 good right now and what's not good. Yeah. What when you wake up and you look at your twenty five years in investing in, in media, what is great about it, and then what do you say? Okay, this I shit think has it's changed. still great that that the power and uh, that creating content and distributing it worldwide, it's got a lot of leg room left to run. So as you look, I think that, you know, we're looking, for example, I mean, think about a continent that has a huge population, a great deal of minerals and resources. I mean, I think that I have a, it's just my weird thing, but I think that if we can help fix the continent of Africa, that sort of the heartbeat of the world, I think that that will be great for the world. And I think if you take a look at media consumption, potential media consumption in places like like Africa with billions and billions of people, look at that look at the average age of a person in Nigeria. I mean it's like 19. And so I think that and and they've got a great deal of resources there. So I think that there is an opportunity around the globe as these markets emerge and people are given the exposure to great content. There's no reason that for example the Power franchise uh, couldn't be a giant global hit in Africa. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I, I, I do get excited about that. The, the, you know, what keeps me up at night, I mean, we're, we're battling, you know, giant, giant companies at this point. I'm, my hat's off to, to Reed and Ted and the team at Netflix for what they've created. But, you know, I think I saw their last, amount that they're investing in content, you know, $17, $18 billion this year. Wow. I look at sort of what they paid for, for example, to to get the, we did the original, we didn't control the rights, um, but we did the original Knives Out, which was a big hit for us with MRC, who brought it to us. But, you know, even though we had, I think, the ability to do the the sequel, but the, the but again, some sort of matching rights. But I mean, look at, it's in the it's in the press what Netflix reportedly paid for those two movies, which what was, did they, what did they pay? I think it was, they said $450 million. That's just mind blowing, mind blowing to me. So, but I think that, so there is enormous competition. There's enormous competition right now to, to keep great executives and people that, you know, when you have, you know, in your world, these tech companies show up uh, and, they decide they want something or they want to get aggressive to get a, a person, They'll, there's no issue with them tripling their salary. And and in many cases, they, they're saying, well, so what if they're under a contract? We don't honor those in California. And so it becomes a, that becomes frustrating. Now, do, you, do you get those emails where you just check in your email and you're like, shit, 
I, we've done a great job. We've we've been a, done a great job retaining key executives. We have a different vibe. It's a different culture. We have sort of a no asshole rule, and it is not cutthroat. We are competitive, and I think everybody at the company loves it when we win. Now we don't have to have the most, for example, streaming subscribers. But if you take a look at the success of Stars, everybody said, well, they can only get a million OTT subs, and then it was two million. And then it was three. Are they're cap? They're be capped out at four. Well, now we're at ten, and we've said publicly how many worldwide streaming subs that we ha- want in the next uh, few years around the globe, which is called fifty million plus. So that's a big business for us. And so, but we're not, you know, this two trillion dollar market cap company. I mean, I think it was great for us to sort of, you know, mark to market of what Amazon just paid for MGM. But I would argue that. Our library is as competitive. I mean, we don't have James Bond, but we certainly have, you know, John Wick and and uh, Hunger Games and Twilight and Now You See Me and on and on. But uh, it that was uh, that was a big price, which is again a good mark to market for us. But I think others. What, what was the the mark to market? Eight, of, I think it was eight point four billion dollars. And what was the revenue for MGM? Oh, it's less than us. I mean, and, and it's a very different company, different management style management team. But again, uh, I think that, you know, we're going to be, we're going to just continue to do what we're doing, build our business. And do I think we could ultimately fit into another, you know, strategic um, conversation? Sure. But ultimately that'll be left up to our shareholders. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, on the personal side, what are three stories that have helped shape who you have? Our last two questions. What are the per- three stories that have helped shape who you've become as a person sitting here today? Well, I think that in the in the second grade, you know, I used to write my letters backwards and difficulty reading. I think that I haven't talked a lot about it, but uh, I was, uh, or I guess I am dyslexic. So I had this great tutor, this Gene Abrams, who was my my tutor in the second grade. And, you know, I would just write, you know, my D's would be B's and my B's would be D's. And I could, you know, I can still read very quickly because I can read backwards and forwards. I was ambidextrous. I could write with both hands. Uh, and I think probably I was supposed to be left-handed. But at that time, I was sort of forced to be right-handed, which is fine. But the uh, but in my, my second son is left-handed. But my feeling is, is that even though I thought that was a, huge disadvantage at the time because it was grueling sort of learning sort of uh, focusing on how to read and letter shaping my handwriting still sucks but um, the idea that uh, I thought that was such a huge disadvantage but I can tell you that being dyslexic actually I think for me turned into a giant advantage because I don't look at problems the same way I definitely I don't like the expression things outside the box but I do do look at uh, problems and opportunities uh, differently. And, you know, my partner would say, John would say, oh my God, please don't give me another idea today. And because uh, part of his task as being the CEO is he has to figure out which ones are the good ones. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I have a bunch of crappy ones, but every once in a while I have a few good ones too. And I, and I think it's actually an idea that, that you might not have heard before, whatever the subject. So I think that shaped, uh, that story shaped who I am. I also think that you know, again, I also say over and over again, there by the grace of God, because, you know, so many people, you know, no one escapes tragedy. 
nobody. Uh, but, and you know, these perfect Instagram, you know, worlds, um, they don't exist. And they can, on the surface, they can look like it's a perfect world. But tr trust me when I tell you that everybody has issues, big issues at sometimes, small issues at other times. But I think that, you know, I said that to somebody recently, I said, look, it's not like we were born in a, you know, Syrian refugee camp, okay, and have to fight our way out of that. So the idea that that we were blessed to be born, you know, where we were born and and into the family that we had, or even if it was just a mom, uh, the idea that you can be in a position where you can sort of, you've, you've got some huge advantages. One of my big advantages were my father and mother raised us, which was in Connecticut. My next door neighbor turned into my mentor, uh, uh, Wick Simmons, uh, you know, who I met when I was probably 10 years old. And he's the guy that encouraged me. I said, what do you think I should do when I get, no, first he encouraged me. He said, where do you want to go to college? I was going to go to a small college in Maine. And then a buddy of mine was going to play baseball. So I went on a spring break trip with him and uh, to Arizona. I had no interest in going to ASU. And then ultimately it turned out to be one of the greatest decisions I ever made, uh, even though he didn't make the baseball team. He said, I can't believe how great these players were. But my neighbor, uh, and my my mentor said to me, you know, I'm a big fan of you getting anybody getting repotted. So I left mm -hmm. the East Coast, ended up at, at Arizona. Then I ultimately, when I got out of school, I wanted to be a salesperson. So I went to, I was going to, I said, what are the great sales programs? And we talked about it. And he said, well, the greatest sales program in the world is IBM. And so I ended up interviewing and getting a job at IBM as a salesperson. And I did well in my, in your hometown. I ended up doing well in, in my training program at, in Dallas. So I was ranked high enough so I got to pick my territory, which was Newport Beach. So I ended up in California, where ultimately I, uh, I started my career and ended up in business school out here at, uh, uh, at, at uh, the Anderson School at UCLA. So that really changed my life, uh, which is, again, just the sort of the one influencing person that, uh, that, uh, that helped me. We all have those people. So I think What a great... Inflection point of hearing that that advice of I'm a big fan of people getting repotted. Yeah, it was good advice. It was really good advice. I'm really glad I did it. And here I am. I mean, I went back to New York for a long time uh, with my Wall Street com uh, career, but I ultimately came back here. The weather's much better here. Much better. Yeah. And moving here, even from San Francisco, it's uh, yeah, I feel like it's it's cheating every day. So with it, and just to to round that out, out of curiosity, what was that? traversal from Wall Street to now running one of the biggest studios in the world? I think it was travel and the desire to, to start a family. And uh, and again, I, I, I mean, I, I looked at my, you know, I did this thing recently where I was looking at how many miles I've flown. I can't tell you how many, I mean, millions and millions and millions of miles. Although I was really excited. I saw this thing the other day where these new uh, I think United Airlines is going to launch in, I think, five or six years. They've got this plan to have these supersonic jets. Oh, yeah. So, 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 so the idea of going to New York in two hours, that's much much more appealing to me than the, the current five or six. So I think that was really a, a tipping factor for me. Continue that thought. How to beyond want to start a family, travel less, um, what, what else made you, what else pulled you towards entertainment and... And then joining up with with um, the original uh, founder of, of Lionsgate. Again, I think it was the most appealing thing was 
it for me, which is there is no other business that I can think of. I mean, you can create as a tech company an operating system that could go on and on and on. I mean, how long is Windows going to be around? Maybe forever. Uh, but the idea that you could make something that would live on in perpetuity and uh, can, you know, influence, not necessarily influence, but enrich people's lives, that's appealing to me. And that, and we've done that. And I think that a lot of stuff would not have happened without the, um, without this uh, uh, being in a place that could create this enormous amount of content. I've never thought about, yeah, no, like I said, I never thought about that, that investment aspect, that asset aspect of, aspect of, of the movie making business that it just, I mean, and we're it, sitting here it, it talking always, about dirty yeah. dancing. I don't think a lot of people look at it. I mean, remember also the way the accounting works in this business, which is crazy to me, which is you effectively have to write off, well, for sure in 10 years, whatever amount of money you put in the content, you wrote it down, you write it down to zero, mostly most of it, 80, 90% in seven years, but all of it in 10 years. So the basis, the, the book value of something like Dirty Dancing or Hunger Games for that matter, the first Hunger Games is now zero. Well, that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Why? That seems... Just the, yeah. way, just the way it works. I mean, it's it. the same idea. So the, like James Bond would be written down to oh, yeah, those first, zero those, 50 years ago. All those movies. Not all of them, but some of the recent ones, they've still got some, quote, useful life. But all of them, uh, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me, where I fell madly in love with uh, Barbara Bach a million years ago. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, you don't even know who Barbara Bach no, is. Do I don't. <laughs> she's, she's married to Ringo Starr. He's, okay. he's, he's a beetle. There we go. All right. The last one of <laughs> half is uh, half of the remaining Beatles. I'll tell you a funny story about that. So I had uh, I lived on the Upper West Side. So I'd met through mutual friends and just walking around Central Park. I'd met John Lennon a couple of times. And then I uh, I went to some. Uh, Wait, how? Oh, just, just somebody was there and said, this is John Lennon. Friends? Couldn't have been nicer. He lived in Dakota, which was 72nd, I think, Central Park West. But anyway, so I'd met him. And then I went to this. Uh, this mine, you know, the mines that blow up. I went to this fundraiser and I, I met Paul McCartney at that. He was, I think, married at the time to this woman named Heather. And so he was there. So I said hello to him. And and then a buddy of mine who sadly died recently, my friend Alan Kozlowski, had, was doing this video with George Harrison. So I met George Harrison. So I'd met three of the Beatles and I thought, well, that's great. I've met three of the four Beatles. And then I went to an engagement party uh, for a friend of mine, Portia, and who was getting it at the time she didn't ultimately marry her, but she was going to get married to Barbara Bach's daughter, or I guess it was the stepdaughter of Ringo Starr. So I walked in, and my friend Portia said, oh, I want you to meet Barbara. I said hello to Ringo. And I and I looked at Ringo, and I said, now I've met all the Beatles. And he looked at me and said, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. That is awesome. I can't wait for uh, my first Beatles story. Um, the uh, the That's phenomenal. And the people that you... Uh, that you run it, the circles you run in, it's uh, it's quite uh, unique. Um, the okay, so is that story number? Two, that is that is that one of the stories? Do we, that to, we don't have to life? stick to your rule. Your rule is three stories. Yeah. I, think, I think two are good. No, okay, we can we can do two, um, and we'll add the Ringo Star story as number three. It sounds like it shaped your life uh, from then on. Last question for you, Michael, is what's something you think a lot about, but you rarely get a chance to talk about professionally, just even personally. Anything that takes up a lot of mind share that you don't get to talk about? I think that there, there was a book I read. My sister sent it to me. She's, a, she's very Catholic. 
I think I'm more spiritual than Catholic, but the, uh, and I listen to your podcast. I mean, so many people say they're raised Catholic, but I don't think it necessarily that even if you don't identify as Catholic, I think that probably some aspect of Catholicism never leaves you. But I'll tell you what I, I, so she sent me this book. I wish I remember the name of the title, but it was about these, um, uh, I'll send it to you later, but it was a, a, it was basically a bunch of passages from these hospice nurses, nurses that were basically on the deathbed of thousands and thousands of, of people. And, uh, so they all talked about, you know, the last words people said, what was important to them, what they were, you know, talking about, knowing that they were dying. And what I think about all the time, which is, and, and if I sort of crystallized, and again, I don't want to belittle these incredibly beautiful passages that these, these hospice nurses wrote, but ultimately what matters and it's, you know, the older I get, the less I know, but I do know this. And they said this so well, which is, it's all about who loved you and who you loved. And the rest of it is just noise. So that's what I think about. Mm. Thanks for having me. Well, on that note, I'll let you get back to your three wonderful boys and, uh, and get out of here. But Miguel, thank you so much for coming over, sharing uh, the insights and the time with with listeners. Um, this is a great uh, for me on ramp to this new world that I find myself in, living in LA. But even and ten thousand times more so. Very thankful to uh, have the personal on ramp of of living right behind you and being so gracious to our family as we moved here. Well, your family is spectacular. Well, thank you for thinking so. Thank you. Bye, 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 bye.